0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm over the moon to be joined by Dr. Kate Brown. She is professor of science, technology, and society at MIT and the author of four very wonderful books. She's here to talk about the brand new one. It's called Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future. It came out in March from W.W. W. Norton. Dr. Brown, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here, Brian now it seems like we're in the middle of, of a chernobyl moment all of a sudden um your book is joined on the shelves this spring by two other new histories focused more narrowly on the disaster itself uh, one by adam higginbotham and the other by Sergei poki and HBO is also going to begin airing a Chernobyl miniseries on May 6th. It looks very dramatic and quite gruesome from the trailer I've seen so far. And I'm wondering why we're seeing this upswing in attention to Chernobyl this year. I, I know later this month, it's going to be the 33rd anniversary of the disaster, but that's not a thing. So uh, can you explain it? And, uh, and could you at least tell us what led you yourself to the project at this time?
1: Yeah, I I can't really explain all the attention. I mean, it seems like the young people who are not alive when the accident occurred in April of 1986 are interested in this as something that's sort of like, you know, near history. And they like, I think, the ruin porn aspects of the Chernobyl disaster. You know, there's this world's largest abandoned territory. There's this ghost city city. A very popular online game called Stalker. Where it's a it's a shooting game, video game, and and people inhabit you know the Chernobyl zone. So I think that's sort of generating some of the commercial media interest in it. There's also been a big Russian uh, TV miniseries about young people uh, wandering through the Chernobyl zone and and bumping into spooky things and zombies and things like that. Um, but also, infer it's you know it's it's now history officially. Once we can get into the archives after twenty years of waiting uh, to see f- files, we now can, and so that's what spurred me on to go into the archives. I, I had written a book called Plutopia about the first two cities in the world to pl- produce plutonium, and at the end of that book, I talk about some of the health issues that I came across among farmers who lived downwind and downriver from these two big, extremely polluting plutonium plants. And these Russian and American farmers told me very similar stories about their health problems. And scientists I talked to said, no, well, those health problems can't be caused by their exposures to radiation, because we don't, you know, we don't have that kind of evidence to show the links. So I thought, well, um, Chernobyl was a civilian uh, nuclear power plant. Uh, it happened at a, at a later period when uh, documents are more likely to be available. So I thought, you know, I just try to uh, see what I could find out as as kind of a sequel to Plutopia, because I felt like I didn't really properly get the the health story in that book. And so when I walked in, first in Kiev, to the Ministry of uh, the Archive, and I asked for the Ministry of Health records on the Chernobyl disaster, I hit pretty much a Klondike of records, um, just reams and reams of records about health problems, and I went to the Ministry of Agriculture and found tons of records about... Uh, food and contaminated food, you know, radioactive sources that had saturated much of the food chain. And, and then I moved on to Belarus and Russia and down to the provincial and county archives. And I found that almost everywhere I went, I was one of the first researchers to sign out these files. Um, so that's what spurred me on to, to write this Chernobyl story.
0: And from your research, I mean, the book has already made headlines in the last month um, for its one for one reason, its challenge to this official Chernobyl death count which for quite a while has has stood at 54. Um, Where did that number come from? And why has it persisted for so long? And and what would you say a more accurate number might look like?
1: That number comes from uh, UN records. And there has been a number of UN reports, first one in 19. Really, the first one in 1986, and then a big one in 1991, 1996, and then the Chernobyl Forum Report of, of 2006. And what that death count comes from is um, deaths that you cannot deny are caused by radioact- general radioactivity. That were Those were firemen, uh, nuclear plant operators, uh, b- about 15 kids who died from having uh, thyroid cancer who lived in the contaminated areas. Um, so that's the minimal, minimal count, but that has been the official count. It's, it's one of the few counts that, for instance, the New York times can cross check if they're doing a story on it. Um, I don't think many people believe that only 40, 54 people died from uh, the Chernobyl accident. And I, and I certainly didn't believe it when I, when I started this research and um, the official count that the Ukrainians have is, well, they have two counts. One is a, that 35,000 people receive uh, compensation because their spouses have died from a Chernobyl-related illness. That's 35,000, not 35. But then that only accounts people who were old enough to marry, who had their doses um, officially recorded so that they could then get the status as a liquidator. and that only accounts for Ukraine. There, there are no similar numbers for Russia or Belarus. I think simply because they haven't gathered them. Um, so that thirty-five thousand is a minimum number. Ukrainian officials give you a number of one hundred and fifty thousand as their guess of how many people have died in Ukraine alone. And and keep in mind that Ukraine received the least amount of Chernobyl contamination um compared to Belarus and Russia where far more more the wind was blowing and far more radioactive fallout landed in those countries so th- between 35,000 and 150,000 is the minimum number that we have so that brings us closer to Greenpeace predictions of death counts than UN predictions
0: yeah and and you, you narrate the accident itself early in the book in just a couple of pages um and then you quickly leave the reactor behind and, and, and move further, further out. Um, you even, you, you know, you, you narrate some about the the zone of alienation, which you're saying, which often ends up on the internet in these photos we often see. Um, but you move out, out from there as well. And you even move out um, in your research beyond the region blanketed by the bulk of the radioactive fallout. Um, what led you to range so far? Well, what I found
1: is that when dealing with this accident and describing this accident, that focusing on the moment of the accident itself, and and, you, and you'll find books that sort of have a second-by-second second countdown of the events leading up to the night of April 26, 1986. Um, and then you'll find lots of stories, media stories, and also histories that deal with the Chernobyl zone itself, this 30-kilometer a circle that was uh, depopulated in 1986 soon after the accident. And I, I find that both of those things, the, the temper and the geographic limitation of the accident, are, are sort of like waving a red flag saying, oh, look, the accident's over here. Um, and that's sort of a false impression we get, that, that, that the accident um, did not have a beginning. It, uh, it does have a very clear beginning. But what I find is that there's a lot of radioactive contamination in these Pripyat marshes where the Chernobyl zone is that was there in the 1960s. In fact, people who lived in that swamp had 30 times more radioactivity in their bodies, according to a 1960s Soviet study, than people who lived in Minsk in Kiev. and Kiev. And so I was like, that's strange. So even before they started building that Chernobyl plant, that swamp that they put the plant in was saturated with radioactivity. Now, the, the Soviet source said it was from global fallout. Some records I found... And some evidence I found showed that there was an a Air Force bombing range inside that swamp and that they were possibly testing strategic, those are small nuclear weapons. So what I found is that um, the contamination of that territory begins before the Chernobyl accident and it continues long afterwards so that there are about a dozen accidents, nuclear accidents in Ukraine after Chernobyl, after 1986. Uh, I was in the Chernobyl zone following biologists for this research for this book. And in 2017, there were big forest fires in the in the the most radioactive part of the Chernobyl zone, which is the Red Forest. And that fire volatized radioactivity that had been stored in the leaf litter and in, in, in the wood of, of fallen trees and branches. And that just went back up into the atmosphere again and created sort of a new event, a new, you know, pretty big nuclear event that wasn't really, you know, on anybody's radar, but when I got there, um, levels of radioactivity were extremely high instead of, I expected about 50 micro sieverts. They were closer to a thousand. So what I found is that Chernobyl is an acceleration, certainly of radioactivity emitted into the, into the local Ukrainian environment, but it was not the first or the last event. In fact, it was something on a continuum of events. Um, that make that led me to zoom out and look at the bigger picture of um, the changes in, in the Northern Hemisphere after 1945 when bombs started to be developed and were tested uh, around the world, but mostly other than in the South Pacific and Australia in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, so I started to, as I say, think of Chernobyl as an acceleration and that Part of the reason we we have these low death counts, and we have this story that an, a rhetorical narrative that look Chernobyl was the humankind's largest nuclear disaster, and only fifty four people died. So therefore, we're okay to go forward in the future um, with nuclear power. It's just not it's just not that big of a deal. Far more people die from coal. Far more people die in car accidents, you know, things start to get relativized. Um, but, you know, if you look at Chernobyl as, a, as an acceleration, you see that in the period of global testing that really sort of mounted a, a, up until 1963 when atmospheric test ban finally took place, um, just in, in one isotope alone, radioactive iodine, which is you know, pre, which goes right to this human, human thyroid and causes all kinds of health problems, that the two big powers, the Soviets and the Americans emitted 500 times more radioactive iodine than Chernobyl during the course of, of nuclear testing. And so, and then what we see when you look at health records around the world is that, um, global fallout landed in the Northern hemisphere and we find in the Northern hemisphere, alarming, um, increases in, in things that are, you know, health problems that are, can be radiogenetic. That's, um, rises in birth defects, uh, childhood cancers, which used to be a medical rarity, which are no longer the case, uh, a real increase in thyroid cancers that start in the 1970s and continue rising to this day for reasons that scientists don't really understand, uh, growth and steady growth in other cancers, including leukemias, which are very radiosensitive, and, and then this really troubling a uh, statistic that since 1945 in the northern hemisphere male sperm counts have dropped in half so what i'm what i talk about at the end of this my book manual for survival is that these this rise in this release of of, of global fallout of radioactivity since 1945 and this increase in in radiogenetic health problems are a correlation um, we don't know if there's causation or, or a connection, but that I, I end my book wondering why we haven't been more curious as a society uh, in, in our own exposures to, to nuclear fallout. You know, in, in many ways, we, we all live um, in the shadow of the mushroom cloud, not just people in the Chernobyl contaminated areas.
0: For a frightening book, which it is in part um, full of ecological catastrophe and repressive politics, um, there are a surprising number of heroes. Um, your narrative is, is full of unfamous people, most of them women, whose kind of bravery and tenacity I think will leave quite an impression on readers. Uh, would you tell your listeners about a couple of those?
1: Yeah, well, the, you know, the, the one of the stories that the, the Soviet scientists, the big scientists, uh, who were on the international scene? One one of the stories they use, and that some some historians repeat uh, uh, without you know sort of checking this, is that oh, if we had said anything about you know how Chernobyl was being mismanaged, we would have been thrown in the gulag, which no longer existed by 1980s, or we would have been shot. And that's just not true. I mean, no no Soviet scientist was getting shot uh, in the 1980s, nor in the 1970s. Um, And what I find is that resistance to sort of glossing over Chernobyl problems on the ground as they were playing out was met with, you know, people got in trouble, people maybe got fined or demoted, but no one was severely punished. And often uh, these dissidents were very effective. So there was one guy, Pavel Chikronov, who uh, lived in the the provincial town of Zhitomir, not very far from the Chernobyl plant. And he noticed that there was a lot of radioactive contaminants in the town's um, drinking reservoir, so he just did, you know, he just followed the trail and he f- up the stream, and he located a, a tannery in the town of Berdichev, neighboring town, and he, the tannery had been uh, processing radioactive hides from animals that had been slaughtered right after the accident, who had been underneath. Um, you know clouds of fallout and they had changed the process to add extra bass and extra chromium to make sure that these hides were clean enough for con- commercial use but that meant you know that r- radioactivity doesn't just go away you just can only move it from one place to another until it decays on its own schedule and so this radioactivity was flowing down the out of the factories pipes and down the stream and into the Jitomir. Uh, drinking reservoir. So what Chikronov did was he shut, he put down a, he was a local sanitation inspector. He put a stop work order on that factory. He got in trouble for doing it, doing so, you know, officials in Moscow were like screaming, you know, how can you stop production, etc. cetera. But uh, he held his ground and inspectors came in from Kiev and they backed him up. Uh, there was another, um, woman who was, uh, you know, a, a physicist. She taught physics in Kiev and she had access to a Geiger counter because her husband was you know, a member of the civil defense team. And she started going around and she found, she would find these little particles, little hot spots of radioactivity right in her own courtyard of her apartment building and where she worked at the University of Kiev. And she picked up these particles and she showed them to me. She just, she taped them onto, you know, pieces of paper and she measured them. And there, you know, these little tiny specks of dust were ragingly hot and and they were, she was able to compute what isotopes they were, and she was able to compute what was going on 120 kilometer, kilometers away at the Chernobyl plant as the fire raged. And so she remotely figured out what was, at the time, highly classified information that the fire at the Chernobyl plant uh, was burned for several weeks. And she also computed something that um, only was sort of finally accepted by the scientific community in 2016 when a Swedish team proved that the accident was not a steam or a chemical explosion. That's what we were told by the Soviet authorities right after it occurred, but that it was a nuclear explosion and that the radioactive contaminants went literally sky high and you know, traveled in the stratosphere a, a long way, uh, 1,500 kilometers, um, which is h- how we know that a part of the nuclear reactor actually blew up. So this woman, Natalia Lazitskaya, was very tuned in just by doing her own sort of citizen science.
0: That's great. And, and Chernobyl exploded, as you, you kind of referenced this, that it exploded during this period of political reform, perestroika, and Gorbachev is, you know, is calling for more transparency in government. And so I wonder if you could help us situate the disaster within the period's political history more. And we go from this period, you know, this point where these initial efforts to cover up the extent of the damage that you mentioned to what you say is, quote, the point when Chernobyl became politicized and monetized. How does that work?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first, you know, there was a, a ban on Chernobyl as a as, as Chernobyl topics that had to do with health radiation. Um or contaminants, and that ban lasted from 1986 to 1989. And um, but in 1989 they lifted the ban, and as they did that, and they are lifting the ban in part because there's lots of pressure from from down below, from really angry citizens who are writing letter after letter, and there all these letters in the archives saying, "Listen, we're living here. We, we've talked to our local radiation monitor, and, and you know he let us know." that we're living in really high levels of contamination. And we want to move. We want to get out of here. Our kids are sick. We're sick. And and these citizens really did, you know, they're, they're, they're villagers. They're collective farmers. They often don't have a high school degree. But they arm themselves with a, a great deal of knowledge, somehow uh, probably being tipped off by local doctors and local uh, uh, bureaucrats and scientists. And they, they push for you know, sort of from the ground up for uh, a more open conversation about Chernobyl. And so finally in 1989, they released the the maps of radioactivity. Just, you know, they're um, black and white maps, really sort of crude maps, but they show the hotspots of contamination. And they show some really remarkable things that people had suspected but not known at the time. You know, even doctors were not able to get this information. One fact that they learned is that, there, um, you know, the, the hot spots of radioactivity were right around the plant, but also if you, as you traveled northeast away from the plant, there was another almost, you know, ragingly hot spot on about 200 kilometers away in the southern Belarus province of Mogilev, and in that province, um, I learned Soviet pilots, days after the accident, had gone up manipulated the weather to make radioactive rain fall down in rural Belarus because they feared a storm front which was heading towards the big Russian cities and was going to drop lots of thunder and rain and radioactive fallout onto the big Russian cities of Yaroslav and Voronezh and Moscow. So in order to save those big cities, they they had it rain in, in a sparsely populated rural area. The only problem is they didn't tell anybody in Belarus they had done that. And so when those maps were published in 1989 with Pity Striker, that was like you know, throwing a, a match in the gasworks. It just it just blew up, and um, people were out in the streets. Uh, plant workers were striking. Um, activists made pilgrimage[s] around to these areas. Um, villagers, you know, stopped working, started protesting. And that um, led to all kinds of people coming forward with with their stories. Uh, doctors came forward and researchers came forward, especially from the contaminated areas. And they announced, um, and Belarusian leaders also announced. They sort of you know changed their tune and said, you know, what we have on our hands is a public health disaster. We we cannot handle uh, the biological load that w- that we have. You know, a KGB G, KGB general is writing in through classified channels, saying that he's got a clinic with 2,000 patients in it, and he's found that there are 12 different radioactive uh, radionuclides located in the bodies of his patients, and that they cause a whole, you know, a, a once healthy person to become Uh, sick on many different levels, and and he documents this all very well. And he says, you know, and I have the best uh, study in the world for this because I have this KGB clinic that has, you know, um, well-paid staff, staff that's allowed access to dose records, which civilian doctors are not allowed access to, and all the up-to-date latest medical equipment. Um, So as the story of this public health disaster hits the news, um... The Belarusian-Ukrainian and Ukrainian governments uh, asked to move about 200,000 more people from highly contaminated areas. And uh, that's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, Moscow is now out of money. Soviet economy is in, is, is in ruins by 1990. So they ask uh, international experts to come in. First, they ask the World Health Organization to come in and do an assessment. Do these people need to be moved? Do we need to be taking any additional measures? World Health sends in three um, nuclear experts and they spend about less than 10 days uh, touring around the the contaminated areas, talking to uh, villagers. And they say at the end of that 10 days, there's no need to do anything. Uh, We don't see any problems, health problems related to the accident. And um, you can, there's no, the permissible limits that the Soviets have set are fine. In fact, you could raise them, you could double them or even triple them. So nobody believed this really quick World Health Organization study. It was, you know, what could you do in, in, in 10 days? So um, then the Soviet government asked the International Atomic Energy Agency to, to do the same thing, to, to do a more serious study of fallout effects. So they sent in uh, uh, what they say is 200 scientists who, who made sort of quick trips, you know, rotating in, two weeks in, two weeks out, um, over about 18 months, and they said the same thing. You know, we saw a lot of health problems after looking at a small contingency of about 1,600 people. Uh, they did have elevated, you know, health problems, but that those health problems could not possibly be related to Chernobyl because the doses were too low. And the doses they were uh, calculating, they were extrapolating those doses from the, the high-level uh, one-shot X-ray that survivors had gotten in Japan from the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. And they're saying, compared to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, these doses that these villagers are getting are too low. So, you know, their health problems cannot be related to Chernobyl contamination. Um, what I find, and I, I went on to uh, work in a number of different UN uh, agencies' archives. What I find is that um, a few key opinion makers in the UN, it's, I'm not talking about a UN-wide conspiracy, um, but a few key opinion makers particularly in the International Atomic Energy Agency and the UN Scientific Committee for effects on atomic radiation uh, went around and, um, and and made a sort of a, a, a lobbying effort to get other UN agencies that had very good programs in the works to do something about Chernobyl to help out with Chernobyl they went around and discouraged that any funding should happen based on Chernobyl they also um, as they did their study, they designed the study to find only catastrophic health effects, um, and then they never mentioned that they were only looking for catastrophic health effects. They said we're just you know, we're looking, we did a medical study. But then when they did find catastrophic health effects, which was uh, a, a significant, a very large rise in children with thyroid cancer, which is a, normally very rare one in a million kids get it, suddenly like twenty kids in the, in a small territory of northern Ukraine come up with this. Uh, thyroid cancer, and 30 in um, southern Belarus. And suddenly they have this thyroid cancer epidemic on their hands. So when they learned that, they, they didn't believe it. They took the biopsies back to the United States to to have them verified. They checked out, uh, but they did not include that information in their report. They said that uh, uh, stories about the rise in thi- thyroid cancer among children were anecdotal, um, and It certainly wasn't an anecdotal when they had the evidence in hand and they had checked it themselves. So I find these kinds of things are going on um, among international experts as they uh, uh, make you know make a case about the effects of Chernobyl's um, health problems. Now you might ask, why would they do that? <laughs> I was that's, that, yeah. that was my question. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, what what I find is that at that same time, early nineteen nineties, oh, throughout the nineteen nineties the big nuclear powers, the U.S., U.K., France, Russia particularly, were facing lawsuits from their own record of testing and producing nuclear weapons during the Cold War. And they had just had um, thousands of people who were saying um, that they had been exposed, either because they were downwind from tests or because they lived near um, uh, nuclear bomb production plants or because they worked... In those production plants, or they were atomic veterans. Um, and they were suing their governments for their because of their health problems. And um, these states were on the line for billions of dollars of liability. But if you could say, look, we did a study, found no health effects from Chernobyl, and only 35 people died, then you could... Um, Make those lawsuits potentially go away, and and that's indeed what happened in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Um, very few of those lawsuits ever amounted to substantial awards for people who uh, made the case that they had been exposed.
0: Well, and now today, the global politics of Chernobyl have hardly cooled down much, um, though I think they have transformed. You know, there's there's really no issue that sets environmentalists against one another like nuclear power and as a little personal story, I, I maintain a very anodyne Twitter presence in general. I'm not I'm not out there, you know, in a flame war with anybody. Um, but when I promoted this this interview coming up and I was excited to read the book, um suddenly I checked back in the afternoon and, and a very prominent envir- environmentalist, a pro-nuclear environmentalist, suddenly was blowing up my 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 feed and uh and there to call call your book junk science and to uh, to liken you to an anti-vaxxer. Um, and I'm not going to ask you to respond to that that kind of ad hominem attack. Um, and I think your many many 70 pages of footnotes um, can speak for themselves. And, and I should be clear you don't you don't this is not a polemic that you wrote here. You don't you don't call for the shuttering of nuclear power plants or for a more moratorium on new constructions. And you even begin the book by saying you know maybe nuclear power is the best option to reduce carbon emissions and supply energy for a growing global population. So I'm wondering then, instead, um, what role would you be pleased to see? Manual for Survival play in this sort of civil war among environmentalists?
1: Well, um, I think that, you know, part of the problem, you know, is is this sort of like, you know, black and white polemic between, you know, the, those who are for nuclear power and those who are against nuclear power. And, and I, you know, I started working on both Plutopia and this book as, as an agnostic about this issue. You know, as an environmentalist, I think we have to do really serious things quite soon to solve the problem of climate change and and maybe nuclear power is, is that. But I also want to make sure that we, if we do embrace a new generation of of, of nuclear power reactors and we keep the old ones that are going now 40 years, still going, I I think we should do that with our eyes wide open, not with um, stale reports that are, 2006 reports that are recycled from 1991 reports, but that we should have fresh information and, and, And real studies, you know, every scientist who commented on Chernobyl, nearly everyone after 1986 uh, said, you know, we need to do a big long-term study akin to the atomic bomb survivor studies on these Chernobyl survivors. And that's the one thing that never happened. And it didn't happen because these few individuals from, um, you know, denoted as international nuclear experts stepped in and said that wasn't necessary. And a big U.N. pledge drive that was going on in 1991 that was going to funnel a billion dollars towards Chernobyl disaster relief. Didn't get funded because of these influential individuals, and so we don't have a study today. And and, and that's what my book calls for. Is it, it's it, we've got all these records. Um, it's the only case in the world that where we have available records where we ha, we know um, we can see the experience medically and in terms of doses of what happened to people right after a nuclear event. The, the Hiroshima studies started in 1950, five years after the bombing. And so, so much of that what that is is a is a retrospective dose reconstruction of of what scientists believe or estimate Japanese survivors got, and and they did that by asking people, you know, where were you standing five years ago when the bomb went off? And we know um, from oral history that 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 memories are um, not always very uh, very precise, and that to base a, a whole science of radiation medicine on, on human memory is probably a, a major flaw. Um, the other problem we have with the Hiroshima studies is that they were controlled by the Americans into the 1970s. And the Americans were really anxious, especially right after the bombs fell, that nuclear weapons would be um, designated as were chemical weapons after World War I as unfair, inhumane, uh, weapons in warfare. And that would mean that the major investment it, it, the Americans made in producing those two different kinds of nuclear bombs uh, would have been lost. They would have, you know, had these nuclear plants that would have, bomb plants that would have, you know, they would have had to just shudder right away. And so if you could come out of those studies, if you could you do a, a study on bomb survivors and say, you know, only the people who were, you know, got struck by the the, the, the strongest shock waves were killed and they were killed mostly for conventional reasons uh, from burns, not from some kind of what the Japanese were calling a, a, an atomic poison, then you could say that this was a legitimate uh, future for nuclear weapons. Um, it was an, a legitimate weapon. And that's exactly what the American Atomic Energy Commission sought to do, was to um, kind of run these studies so that atomic uh, weaponry didn't look so bad and and one and that's meant that there was no long lasting effects, so indeed, the atomic bomb um, studies found that there were there were no genetic repercussions um, and but one of the ways they did that was by not accounting for fallout they they really the dose that they estimate to this day is just a dose that uh, survivors got in less than a second, you know, it was this one big X-ray. But the, the fallout that occurred after the bombs fell um, was not taken into account. And so so what Chernobyl offers us is a, is fresh data uh, taken about the exposures of people immediately after an accident and a, and a different kind of experience, an experience in which people were living not with one just big X-ray, but long-term you know, chronic exposures to low doses of radioactivity, and that's um, that's far more likely to occur in our future. Um, we're hopefully not going to have a nuclear war, and if we do, we we probably won't be having these discussions anyways because there won't be many discussions. But we're, we probably will have more nuclear accidents in, in reactors um, and processing plants with waste reproduction waste facilities, and so chronic low doses is is really the the question. Uh, that we need to have answered for our future.
0: You contributed an essay uh, that draws on some of this research to an exciting 2017 volume um, edited by anthropologist Anna Singh and others um, called "Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet." And in your book, now you describe that during your travels you were on the lookout for people you termed "survival artists," and I wonder if you could tell us about one of them you came across and what we can learn from them.
1: I'm trying to think of of, of the one the survival artist that. Might be most interesting for this story, Um, you know. What there was a woman I I spent a lot of time with who was living in Pripyat and working at the Chernobyl plant when the plant exploded, and uh, she was evacuated to a village. The village she quickly determined was more radioactive than than the city of Pripyat from which she'd been evacuated to, and so she got herself and her two young sons on a bus to uh, Kiev and got to the train station Kiev, and there. She got a ticket to Moscow, where she went to stay with her sister. <clears throat> but in Moscow, her her son started to exhibit signs of radiation sickness. He he started to throw up and uh, felt very poorly. So they called the hospital, and you know the emergency um, ambulance crew came over, and they they were all wrapped up like she says in Saran wrap. Um, and they, you know, came with Geiger counters, and and they took everything, you know, all the possessions that were radioactive, and, and took them with them, and, and brought the uh, uh, this friend of mine and her two kids to the hospital. And there they stayed in the hospital for a couple of months. And and that's the interesting thing, you know, the official count is that 300 people were hospitalized after the accident. That number comes from the fact that um, the the Moscow officials said, you know, you were, we're only going to talk about. Uh, hospitalized patients in in one hospital in Moscow where the firemen were sent to. Um, but we're not going to mention anybody else. Um, and the reason they even the only reason they talked about the hospital, the ones that, where the firemen were is because one American doctor, Robert Gale, was helping out at the hospital at the time and so he was obviously you know, a witness to it. But instead of 300 people hospitalized, I find that the, the number is 40,000 hospitalized just in the three uh, republics immediately around, the Chernobyl zone. And so, um, uh, this, uh, sur- survival artist I'm talking to was, was in the hospital with her kids as part of this hospitalization. And when she was released, she had no place to go and she was basically homeless and penniless. And, um, Amazingly, she went as soon as she got a chance. She went right back to the rebuilt town that was going to support the, the still going Chernobyl plant, plant. It's a town called Slavutych, and that's where I met her. And um, I just had to admire her um, commitment to her community. That's why she went back. She she missed her her friends and neighbors in this town of, of Pripyat. So she went back to work at the Chernobyl plant when it opened in 1989, and and moved into the newly built replacement town of fit. And, um, you know, she, she sang in the choir and she knew everybody. And and, and uh, what I admired about her is that on the days that she felt good and, and, and she had health problems and not every day that she felt good, she was, um, you know, she would break out into songs, she'd do a little dance, she'd laugh a lot, she showed me around and, and introduced me to everybody else around. And I, I think those qualities of... Um, Sort of being left to to struggle on your own with these problems, and um, and sort of mobilizing, you know, your own resources and those of your community and drawing on them. I, I had a lot of admiration for that.
0: Thanks. Uh, I would say also that your book Pootopia, your second book. Um, is perhaps the, the most loved environmental history published this decade. And and fans of that book, and there are many, um, will find in Manual for Survival, in the new book, you deploy even more fully this accessible first-person narrative style that you used in places throughout that book. Um, and it, I, I kept thinking as I was reading it, it read kind of like a 300-page magazine article. And I mean that in the best possible way. It was sort of a, a long, long read. Um, and and while, But yeah, even so, what was I really struck by was that even though it's not academic in that, in that prose style, it offers actually i think a clearer picture of a scholar at work and a researcher at work than we almost ever get in a typical academic history with its voice from nowhere um and i wondered if you could just say a little bit about about your decision to 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 adopt the the prose style you did and, and any challenges you had doing so uh
1: yeah well you know it really wasn't much of a decision for me i I've, I've always written my histories in the first person because i think it's important um you know we know that what we do is not objective we, we no longer claim that history is some objective science uh, or social science and that um so th- therefore it seems to me like th- we need to bring our readers along so that they understand how we got the story what was our quest and our and what are our queries and and you know what are some of the problems we run into as we try to get this story so that i think that offers the reader um uh, better abilities to evaluate the kind of material I'm going to get. And I knew that this was going to be a controversial topic and in, indeed it has. My, 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 in my inbox and my email is, is not, has not stopped now for weeks since this book came out a couple weeks ago. Um, but what I think, um, so what, so what I was thinking is, you know, that here is all this complicated um, material, highly technical, sometimes contradictory, you know, I, I would find, you know, in the same archive assertions that there were no medical problems caused by Chernobyl. And, and, you know, I turn the page and there'd be another person asserting there's a ton of medical problems caused precisely by Chernobyl. And so I'm busy sorting out actively, you know, audibly in this book, you know, these, these different voices and, and how do I deal with them? And I finally figured out that, you know, I'm in the middle of the, 2016, a WikiLeaks scandal and the, the evidence that the Russian government uh, meddled in the U.S. elections and as well as the Brexit elections. And I couldn't help but think, you know, be, be influenced by that environment. And, and I couldn't help but think, well, you know, maybe some of this information in the archive was planted there specifically for some historian like me to find in the future <laughs> and be misled, you know, that archives do lie. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, you know, archives lie, but but maybe trees don't. And so I um, called up the, the only two biologists I could find who consistently work in the zone. And, and Tim Mousseau and Anders Moeller go uh, twice a year regularly. In June and September, they're easy to find in the zone. And they generously invited me along on their trips whenever I could. And so I, I went with them and learned a lot from them about radio ecology. and ecology. And I learned how to read a forest or a swamp or any kind of those natural environments for radioactive damage. You know, a lot of people go into the Chernobyl zone. They're like, look, there's a tree and there's a bird. The Chernobyl zone is thriving. Is the conclusion, and and that's a it's a real easy uh, trope that comes out of that comes out of not a lot of scientific evidence. There's just a couple of articles that have that story, but it comes out of um, a, a real human desire to have this story, have nature fix things, fix our human messes. I think. Um, but what I learned from Mousseau and Moeller is that um, trees don't lie. Indeed, that you can see the the sort of grip of, a, of, you know, sort of a radioactive hand on a tree, especially vulnerable pine trees. And, and they quickly get, um, not quickly, but they can easily be distorted or get mutations that cause the the wood itself to twist and bend. You know, pine trees were grown in this area to be bored straight, to be used as lumber. Um, but here you have these, you know, sort of wickedly twisted trees with um, the, the pine needles themselves, which are... Are supposed to be also straight and all oriented in the same direction that, that are twisting around um and i started to you know be able to understand that when you can smell uh radioactivity in a, in a forest because if you get to a part of the forest where there's not those usual forest smells which often come from decomposition the smell of things decomposing, decomposition slows down greatly when there's high levels of radioactivity because there are not the microbes and the insects to take apart organic matter. So these kinds of things um, I learned and I, again, took my readers along on those adventures so that um, they could understand how I tried to cross-check the sources I found in the archives with sources that I uh, located in the environment and with people who I I met along the way.
0: Before we let you get back to your email inbox, um, I wondered if I could ask uh, if you're able to see the horizon beyond what I'm sure is an exhausting season of press that awaits you. um, Do you have any sense of what projects you might turn to next?
1: Uh, A little bit, yeah. I'm interested now that we know that... uh, trees are are sentient and and have sensory abilities and that they they have a distributed intelligence. I'm curious in the people who um who knew that a long time ago you know long before Western science came to that conclusion in the last five years uh you know peasants in the Ukrainian forest would talk about the spirits of the trees and and, and spirits of different plants um, Rogue scientists have been saying um similar things um for you know, 50, 60 years. So I want to go back in time and look at uh, these sort of indigenous and, and rogue sources of, of, um, of scientific knowledge that uh, have been discredited, but now uh, they're not discredited. And so I think if we're going to solve some of our, our big environmental crises of the future, we're going to have to return to indigenous knowledge and indigenous skills. And I, I want to write a book that um, starts to explore that path.
0: Oh that's wonderful. Well, we'll we'll be looking out for that. Um the book again today is Manual for Survival: A Chernobyl Guide to the Future. It's by Kate Brown and it's available now. Go get your copy from Norton. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for your time and for your work.
1: Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it.